We are looking at what the cross, what this whole Lenten season would have been like for Jesus. What was he thinking? What was he feeling? And, and how did things kind of play out from his perspective? Not a perspective we often think of when we go through these times. And so last week, I did kind of a profile of Jesus. I figured we're going to think about what it was like for Jesus. We need to think about what Jesus was like. So made some important points about Jesus. I just want to highlight a couple things. That he wasn't white. He was Middle Eastern. He had dark skin, probably short hair, probably did not wear his hair long. Um, uh, had a beard, but he would have been... Uh, Dressed like anybody else, but he would have, the Jews at that time were very conservative about their dress. So he would have probably had long sleeves, probably had a long outfit on to cover a lot of his skin, maybe even a, a kind of a hood or a cover on a lot of the time. He was not a modern American. He, he ate simple meals, often just bread. He had no idea what a refrigerator was. And uh, probably to walk something like 15 miles a day on average to get water, to get food, to, to go to work, all those things. He was not a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. And as a Jew, he said Jewish prayers. He went to synagogues on Saturday. He didn't go to church on Sunday. And he went to the temple for major festivals. In fact, a lot of those prayers of the Jews were sung. We don't often think of Jesus singing, but he often would have sung. And he often was known for his going to parties and he Told a lot of stories about parties. And so he would have smiled and he would have laughed. And we don't often picture Jesus like that either. Kind of hard to think about what Jesus was like because he's fully God and he's fully human. He is human, but he's without sin. And so what does that mean? Like, is, is he bad at certain things? Is he better at other things? What does it mean to be fully human without sin? And we closed last week in saying that Jesus had predicted his own death and resurrection. That he knew what was coming He was even sort of picking fights to get him towards the cross. He knew what he was in for, and still he was going to the cross. And today I want to look at a story that happens just before Holy Week. We don't have an exact timeline, um, but right before Jesus goes through Palm Sunday, he, he goes to this city of Bethany, and he has a friend there named Lazarus who has died, and he raises him from the dead. And so that's the story I want to I pinpoint today because I think it shows a lot about the emotions of Jesus and also shows a lot about Jesus as he's coming towards the cross. Now, interestingly enough, I, I, I just preached this text not that long ago. Uh, I was starting to study for it this week and I was like, hey, I really remember a lot about this passage. And then I remembered, oh, I did some stuff on John in 2022. So some of you weren't here for that. And some of you may not remember it. If, it's okay, if you didn't, it's okay. I didn't either, right? But, um, but this perspective of Jesus, I think, is important. And, and this week in my study, I found a couple things out about this passage I had never seen before that I think are pretty powerful and pretty important. To, so to begin, we got to know the players and we got to know where we are. We're in the town of Bethany. Bethany is real near to Jerusalem. Okay, so if you went from Jerusalem to the east, up the Mount of Olives and kind of down the other side, about two miles from uh, Jerusalem proper was the city of Bethany. So it's kind of a suburb. Okay, and if you walk 15 miles a day, two miles is nothing. Okay, so when Jesus would come into town with his disciples, they would typically stay in Bethany and then, because Jerusalem got so busy, He would stay in Bethany, and that way he could come in for the festivals. 
I also think he may have liked Martha's cooking. Okay, he seems to go there a lot and and seems to like the place. Um, and so we ha- we have another incident of Mary and Martha, right? Where where Mary is sort of the younger sister that's like into her emotions and feelings. Okay, so she wants to be with Jesus, and Martha is sort of the type A eldest sister that wants to keep everything in line, and she's working in the kitchen. Everybody remember the story? Okay, she gets mad at Mary, but there's sort of this combination between the two of them. And so Mary gets so caught up in her feelings that she sometimes kind of misses out on what needs to be done, but, but Martha also gets so caught up in what needs to be done, she misses out on some of the feelings and experiences. But the, the, the key character here is the character of Lazarus. He is the brother of Mary and Martha. And we are told that Jesus loved him. It's an interesting phrase because it doesn't really get used a lot. But specifically, in a special way, Jesus loved Lazarus. Now, kind of interesting to read about Lazarus. Because a couple of things about Lazarus. Jesus seems to have some kind of close relationship with him. They're best friends or something. He really loves Lazarus. But we don't know what Lazarus does professionally. Most of the characters in the Bible, we're like, oh, he's a carpenter, he's a zealot, he's a tax collector, whatever it is. Okay? Lazarus, we have no profession. In the entire Gospels, Lazarus does not speak ever. Lazarus has no speaking at all in the entire New Testament. Okay? And it's really kind of interesting that normally in that society, you would list the man first and then the woman. Right? You'd list the brother and then the sister. But in, in this case, it's always Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary, and their brother Lazarus. It's kind of a weird description. And so people have wondered sort of why this is. But I had a friend that preached this text uh, a few years ago and was sort of wrestling with this. And one of his thoughts, and we can't prove this, but it does make some sense, is uh, I wonder if Lazarus had special needs. In other words, I wonder if Lazarus had Down syndrome. And so he doesn't have a career, and he's listed after his sisters, and, and maybe Jesus loves them, because if you've been around somebody with Down syndrome or something like that, um, they, they tend to, to be like that. You know what I mean? They tend to be sort of like modern, and the way everybody's mourning so much, or is gathering together. Lazarus is a special guy. I don't know that he had Down syndrome or something like that, but it's kind of an interesting to think about, and it does make some sense of a little bit of the oddity around the description of Lazarus. So, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus is ill. We are in John chapter 11. You may want to follow along in your Bible or on your phones. But it's kind of a long passage. So I'm going to read some of it and I'm going to tell you some of it. They use the word that he's ill. It means gravely ill. Okay, and gravely ill means he's dying. Okay, they send word to Jesus that Lazarus is deathly ill. But Jesus has a funny reaction. Let me read it. John 11, starting in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, this is, this, is so, this is really funny to me. Okay, number one, he says, this illness just leads to, this doesn't lead to death. Well, Jesus is wrong. <laughs> it does. He dies. 
Okay, now he knows he's going to resurrect Jesus. You know what I mean? So, but, but really, like to the disciples, they're like, well, Jesus got that one wrong. And then look at this is odd phrase. Like, he loved, John tells us, he loved them. So he waited two days. What? <laughs> like, if, like, if you love them, go. If you love them, why didn't you already know who's going to be sick and already be there? Like, if you love them, why are you waiting? That is a weird phrase. Go. He goes on, he waits. And then eventually he tells the disciples they have to go to Bethany because Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples say, well, if you fall asleep, he'll wake up. And then he finally says, no, Lazarus has died. We need to go. Why does he wait? The disciples, by the way, don't want to go because the last time they were in Jerusalem, they sought to stone Jesus. Okay, and so they have this whole debate on. They don't really want to go with him. In fact, Thomas, in verse 16, so Thomas called the twin, says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Like they had this sense, if we go back to Jerusalem, they're going to stone us. And they're like, well, if we're going to go get stoned, let's go. Let's go with him. If Jesus is going to go, if he's determined, we're going to go with him. So let me pick up the story in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. This is their dynamic. Okay, This is how they work. Every time there's a funeral, every time there's a death, don't the family dynamics come to the surface? Okay, all over the place. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Jesus finally arrives. Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. Jewish belief was that your soul hung around for three days. And during that time, you could possibly be resuscitated, revived. But, but after the fourth day, the soul had left. So we were past the time when he should be able to get back up. Martha, the busy sister, uh, the type A, she goes to him. And what does she say? Lord, if you'd been here. Lord, if you've been here. And then Jesus carries on his journey and he gets closer. And Mary comes to greet him. And picking up in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same question. Same comment as her sister. Lord, if you've been here. I have done many funerals. As far as I can tell, about 100 now. And, and always we have questions like this. Lord, if you'd been here, Lord, where were you? Lord, why? Sometimes there are questions about us. Why didn't I say it? Why didn't I say the thing I always wanted to say? Why didn't I make my peace before this? Why didn't I do more? Right? We all have these, 
these questions. We want to make sense of it. We want to blame someone. A lot of times we end up blaming God. We want to assign guilt. Maybe it's to ourselves that we didn't do enough or we didn't say enough. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's the doctor or all kinds of things. We have all these things that we do. But what you know, Jesus doesn't answer that question at all. <laughs> Jesus doesn't even address it. Right? Like, well, why, he, why was he late? Well, he hung out on purpose and was late. And when they ask him about it, he does not even answer the question. As many times I've done funerals, people ask all those questions. There was never good answers to any of those questions. Never. Listen to what Jesus does do. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then the famous short verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also keep this man from dying? So they're troubled by it. The Greek word for weeping here, I don't like to do a lot of Greek words in preaching, but there's a couple really important ones in this passage. The Greek word for weeping is actually the word for like the shape of a tear, like a teardrop. And so when it says he wept, it means physically large teardrops are coming out of his eyes. In fact, there's some some suggestion in Greek that this word is just for, for fluid from the face. In other words, have you ever seen somebody cry so much that they have spit or they have snot? Like when we say weep, I mean, Jesus really wept. You got to get this picture. Jesus doesn't just cry a little bit. His eyes don't just water. He is weeping. He is sobbing. Okay. Jesus weeps twice in the Gospels, once for a city and one for a person. One time he weeps, weeps for Jerusalem. One time he weeps for Lazarus. And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Not that Jesus weeps for like the world. You know, he doesn't just weep for like, he weeps for a location, a particular place, and he weeps for a particular person. Not all of humanity, not all the world, he weeps for Lazarus. And in the passage, it's kind of clear that he also weeps not just for Lazarus, but he weeps because of the people around him who he's moved by the people that are with him that are also weeping. He weeps not just for Lazarus, he weeps with them. And funny enough, he weeps for Lazarus even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Right? He's weeping for somebody he knows in like a half hour he's going to talk to. And that's, that's how I, much Jesus identifies with grief and loss here. Now, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and had a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been in there dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And know that you, I knew that you always heard, hear me, but I said this on, on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Now, another Greek word that is so important to this passage, and this I had never heard in my life till this week, and I think it's amazingly interesting, is there's this phrase that says Jesus was moved. He's, it's earlier that he's moved in spirit and greatly troubled, and then in verse 38, what I just read, again, he says he's deeply moved. And it's a really weird Greek word. If you look it up in English translations, they do all kinds of things with it. But the word is actually a sound. Okay, the word is, is literally a sound. Some translations say groan, but the word actually is snort. Okay, Jesus snorted. And there's a particular kind of snort. This is actually an equestrian term. Okay, it's related to horses. Okay, I don't know if you've ever been around horses when they get mad or they get stubborn. Okay, but a horse will let out a major snort and it'll stomp their feet. Uh, my, my daughter uh, rides Clydesdales. And I'm telling you, like, the Clydesdales are the big horses. Okay? And when a Clydesdale doesn't want to do something, it doesn't do it. You know what I mean? Like, you, you got to be really experienced. you got to really learn what you're doing to make a Clydesdale listen to you. They're just so big. Right? But so this horse, this, is, this word literally means snort like a horse. It means to snort. It's a snort like a horse. It's an anger. I always thought Jesus gets sad again. That's not what this says. This action is used for anger. It's also used for stubborn. It's used um, for resolve. Okay, it's used when Jesus sternly warns people or admonishes people. It has to do with anger. So we saw that Jesus wept and he gets so sad when he looks in the face of death and grief and the effects of sin in this world. But I want you to know that Jesus also looks at it and he gets angry. He like snorts, he growls. That's almost, it's almost a growl probably. He gets angry when he sees the effects of sin and death. By the way, grief is always a mix of emotions, right? When we talk about it like stages, that's not really how it works. It's this jumbled hodgepodge of anger and depression and denial and regret and joy and laughter and weeping. I mean, it's all of that. If you go through all that, that's, that's it. If you go through grief and you feel all these feelings and they come at you in like waves like that and mixed together, yeah, that's how it is. That's how it was for Jesus too. But, but this is such an important moment in the Gospels because it's like Jesus growls and gets angry and he puts his foot down and he's like, no more death. And it's like at this moment, Jesus suddenly has this, this resolve and this pointed, I mean, he's been heading there, but in the Gospel of John, it's this major turning point where Jesus is like, okay, this is over. And he knows that he's going to have to go through that but he also knows he's going to defeat that. Everybody understand that? He's not just sad. He doesn't just weep with you. He's angry that death is there and he's going to do something about it. Now, what they used to do is they would take the bodies of the deceased and they would, they would wrap them in cloth. They would put lots of fragrances on there to try to cut down on the smell. They would put it into a grave and they would seal it so that animals would stay out of there. And then after about a year, when the body had majorly decomposed, you would go in and you would gather the bones normally at this time to put into like an ossuary. It's a little box. And the box was, was made for every person. And it's basically the size. You could tell the age of somebody who passed away a lot of times. 
because it, the box is the size of your femur. Okay, because that's the longest bone in the body. So that's how long the box has to be. So you would leave the body in there. So they've done this with Lazarus. They've wrapped him all up. He's sitting in there, decomposing. And they're right. Four days, this is going to smell, Jesus. You do not want to open this stone. And I love how Jesus includes people in the process. I love that he asks people to move the stone. And I love that he asks people to remove the grave cloth. That is such a great picture of church. You know what we do? We, we, when, when people are dead, we remove the obstacles for them coming to life. And then we take off the clothes of their death existence. Right? That's what we do at this church. That's what we're all about. Get things out of the way that, that keep people from Jesus. And then take off and heal and, and bring people to wholeness after they find Jesus. That's the work of the church. And I love that Jesus includes the people in this. So Jesus yells, Lazarus, come out. You could almost imagine this anger is still there. Yells at him, come out. And remember, he's wrapped. His face is wrapped. His arms are wrapped. We don't know his arms are like separate. Legs are separate. If he's all sort of wrapped together, we don't get a description. What I will tell you is, that was an awkward, weird, and probably scary moment. Okay? Four days after the funeral services. The people who had worked on the body and wrapped him. And he comes. What does he do? He hops. He squirms. He snakes his way out. We don't know. It's got to be awkward. He's not coming like skipping and jumping. He's wrapped in all these claws and fabric and stuff. And they better unbind him quick. Because he's going to suffocate under there. Yeah, this awkward, scary moment. In fact, in fact, the word spreads about this moment. That people start hearing about this moment. And this is this major other turning that happens in the Gospel of John. Where now the Pharisees start to say, we, we've got to kill this guy. We've got to get rid of Jesus. Because their point is, if the Romans hear about Jesus. And they hear about all the stuff he's doing. They're going to get scared. And they're going to come in. They're going to wipe us out. They're going to destroy our temple. And they're going to put us down. And so, so this moment is in, in, the, in the text that actually says in John. That from then on, Jesus can't be in public. He goes out to the desert and he waits until Palm Sunday. We don't know how long that is. But he can't be in public anymore in that area until he comes in for Palm Sunday in the last week of his life. So not only is this moment, this moment of of resolve for Jesus, but I think this is also this major turning point in the plot to kill Jesus. This is in John, the last drop. We have got to get rid of this guy. Because, because his, his reputation is growing so much. I love this picture. I just want to again leave you with this picture of Jesus weeping and Jesus snorting. Right? That Jesus weeps when you weep. But Jesus also gets mad at death just like you do. In fact, he, he goes to the cross to deal with it. He enters into death for it. He defeats sin and death. And the amazing thing is, how does he do it? With his own death. Right? I wonder if part of his anger is knowing I've got to do this. I've got to go into a tomb and I've got to come out of the tomb. And I wonder if on his and Jesus' mind, there's all these layers of feelings and thinking going into it. But isn't that how we all are with death? 
So think of Jesus weeping. Think of Jesus snorting and growling and putting down his foot and, and facing death like he did for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.